The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the deep truth behind the song that we just sang that enables us to talk about you as judge and as you as a God who sees all and judges it rightly and then can at the end say that we don't need to flee from you but are safe with you. You are a judge who is, in fact, the defender of your people. There is marvelous juxtaposition of of cosmic issues there. You an all-seeing and all-righteous and amazing, even frightening judge. And, at the same time, a wise and deep and gracious and merciful lover of the soul. Those are amazing truths, and I pray, Lord, that you would enable us now in this moment to hold on to both of them. And particularly, Lord, because most of us in this room are your people, that we would particularly, if if we lean on one foot or the other there, Lord, that you would give us grace to lean on the proper foot. You would give us grace to lean on the last line, safe with you. That as we listen to these passages and last week and this week and next week, if we listen to John the Baptist and, and your word through him, that we would hear in it the call to repentance and the call to contrition and the call to lowliness, and we would lean yet on the right foot. You are a God who is pleased to dwell with the contrite and lowly in heart and to shepherd a people humble, to shepherd us as sheep in your gentle care. Give us grace to hear and to think properly and to put our weight on the right things. Give me grace to speak, putting my weight on the right things. And cause us, Lord, cause your people here, Father, I plead with you, cause your people here to have your right, your a perspective of you that is right, a, your right image in their minds. It is right that we be a people who are humble, and it is right that we are, be a people who, in fact, boast if we boast in the right things and are humble in the right way. So, Lord, this, this is difficult, so grow it in us, please. Give us grace to be a people who are humble beneath you and see ourselves as nothing and glory in what you have done for us, particularly in the cross that saves us and makes us a marvelous, marvelous, eternal, glorious people of God brings us into communion with you yourself 
that secures for us a standing and, in fact, a seat in the heavenly courts forever. You have done marvelous things for us. So, Lord, speak this morning again. Do more marvelous things today. Would you open up your word to us? And, and Father, I pray that you would send your spirit here, that we would rightly comprehend who you are, what your word says to us, and that, that we would apprehend it, we would hold on to it, pull it in and hold on to it, and that we would be changed by that. Everyone here in this room comes from some place, Father, and, and you know where that is, and you know what they need to hear, so speak to them, please. Emphasize certain things. Convict where needed. Confront where needed. Comfort and encourage where needed. Bring consolation. Whatever is needed, Lord, do it this morning by your Spirit. To make your word clear. Would you own this time? Would you exalt your Son and build your church? Thank you that, you that we can talk to you and that you listen, that you respond. You're always engaged and you will be, now even now, engaged to build up your people and to honor the name of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 3, where we continue on with the ministry of John the Baptist. This gospel opened by speaking of, by announcing to us that John was coming, that his pending birth was, was pending. Now it's the year 29 AD, approximately, and he's grown up and he's beginning the mission on which God sent him, the preparing of a people ready to receive the Lord. And what is it that God, through John, is trying to do to prepare his people? What, what does he regard as necessary? The kind of preparatory work that would enable us to enjoy God's deliverance? Well, to enjoy God's deliverance, perhaps ironically, the work that needs to happen before that is a work of calling out for repentance, a work of contrition and lowliness that says, I am not enough and I will turn all of myself, I will reorient all of myself towards God and look to Him to meet my needs, particularly the need for forgiveness of sins. As was emphasized in verse 3, we... In this reorientation of life, John would envision and we should envision a, a turning to him for all of our needs, that we are not sufficient in ourselves or anything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But in particular, he's talking about sin. He calls for repentance. That was last week. John's the one that Isaiah talked about, a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord, particularly by calling people to repent, to say, I am not okay. I need God. Now, they don't, of course, understand Jesus and the cross. John doesn't understand him. But that's John's ministry. It's what he was doing, calling people to turn again to God, to experience him, and as I prayed, his dwelling with a contrite and lowly people, to experience that today. So John's calling out, and John's doing that. That was summarized very briefly in verses 3 and 4, and then the Isaiah quote in, in 4, 5, and 6, his activity. And now, this week, we turn to consider some of what John says. Because obviously he said a bunch of things, 
This is kind of an encapsulated version of his ministry. He wandered all over the place, talking lots to lots of people and baptizing people frequently in different places along the Jordan River. So we get some picture of what he said this week and next week also as he and and around the context of his baptism. So today we get something about the natural confrontation that would occur as he's talking to people and calling them to repentance. And then something about what do we do then? How do we live? What follows that? So those are kind of two pieces that we're going to look at. People heard him call them to reorient lives. They agreed with him and then said, now what? And that's what we're going to see him address today. The confrontation and then the now what? So let me read verses 7 through 14. And then I'll draw out two observations from that passage along this kind of main point. Here's my main point for this morning. In light of God's final reckoning, we should bear fruit that matches a repentant heart. In light of God's final reckoning, we should bear fruit that matches a repentant heart. Let me read the passage. This is in Luke 3, verses 7 through 14. He, that's John, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Luke chapter 3. The details, I think, are sufficiently clear, so I'm just going to make two observations from the passage. And here's the first one. From the first paragraph... God's final reckoning is real, and it is coming. It's real, and it's coming. And I have to say, as I, as I deal with this, I'm going to look at what it is that, that John says, and we need to kind of feel that. It needs to come to us, we need to consider it. And then at the end of this first point, I want to talk a little bit about how we should consider it. How all of us should consider it. God's final reckoning is real and it is coming. Verse 7 is a very blunt verse. You offspring of venomous snakes. That's not a nice thing to call anybody. But it's just possible that he's doing more than just insulting them. Given the association in the Bible of snakes and Satan, it's possible, I think even likely, that John is making a statement that is less of an insult and more of a statement about their true spiritual condition. 
hidden behind the apparent desire to look repentant and humble before God. Certainly he's not directing this at everybody in the crowds, and if we read Matthew's account, we see that he had his eye particularly on the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were present. So it couldn't be everybody that he means. He can't, he can't know everybody in the crowd, but Luke presents it to us left general so that all of us consider it and don't say just, well, he's talking about those bad people. Luke leaves it open for all of us to, to, to receive. He issues this warning, John does, because evidently some came when they heard by word of mouth that here is the, the new thing to do, spiritually speaking. If you want to get your spiritual bona fides, you want to pad your religious resume, you head out in the wilderness, you make a little pilgrimage to go get baptized by this increasingly popular kind of oddball prophet. So people would go out, and John is attacking such pretense with a pointed question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's not actually curious. Hey, how'd you hear about me? He's not actually curious about that. He's emphasizing the, the end part of that statement. He's, he's kind of reframing what's going on here. This is not like a big conference that you come to to say, I was there. Were you? I was there. No, this is about wrath coming. I thought I was here to be seen. No, it's about wrath coming. The great Day of the Lord is coming. When you use that phrase, day of the Lord, picking up language from the Old Testament that is all over the Old Testament. The day of Messiah, when he comes to make all things right. And gloriously, part of making all things right is what we saw at the end of verse 6. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Part of making all things right is that he will come to save and to deliver and to carry his people out of bondage and out of suffering, out of hardship, into glory. And the flip side of that is that, like Psalm 2 says, Messiah will come with a rod of iron to break all of God's opposition like so many clay pots, to shatter and to cast down, to judge and to destroy. In the same day, both events, the day of the Lord is the day of salvation and the day of judgment. And it is coming right after me. Even now, he is making his way smooth. He is coming. what he's talking about and it is a dreadful thing to consider the wrath of God an axe laid at the root of the trees ready to cut them down and throw them into the fire where they will burn forever and he's talking about people oh people cut down and burned Forever. This is the most sobering element in all of the scriptures. The day. Everything that stands in opposition to him 
even if it appears to be or pretends to be surrendered and submissive and obedient and faithful, He, the Lord, sees the truth, sees into the hearts. He is the judge of every heart on earth. He sees, and His wrath is kindled and about to break forth against all which is against Him. It is sobering. John says this, crystal clear, confrontational and stark, right alongside of, I mean, in our Bible it's printed right after the verse that talks about the salvation of God. It is right alongside of it because this day itself is two-edged, right next to each other. There is a coming judgment and there is a coming salvation, side by side. And he does all that he can to, to hold in front of his audience and we should do all that we can to hold in front of ourselves and in front of all others that which one of those two you personally experience depends completely on how you respond to the offer, to the call, the repentance to God for salvation of sins. It all hinges right there. There is a day of salvation and a day of wrath, and in the middle of it is a call to repent and turn. The only place to flee from the God who is the God of wrath is to the God who is the God of gracious, merciful forgiveness. And he is the same God. He comes holding out two hands, one of them a fist gripped hard around a rod of iron, and one of them an open-handed pierced palm. Which do you want? That is the choice presented before all of the earth, before every single person, right now, today. We cannot miss that. We cannot avoid that. We cannot forget it. We cannot slip it. We must hear it. And respond to it with a humble heart that says, I am a sinner and I am under that judgment and I am in need of forgiveness of sins. Oh God, help me. And the scripture says, and John holds out in front of us, that the person, the heart that cries out like that before God finds him eager, 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 anxious even to forgive. Finds him a God who forgives sin. In, as we know, Christ crucified. All debt removed and all wrath set aside and forgiveness poured out. There is no viable alternative. Christ only, Christ crucified alone is the grounds for salvation. There is no other way. Not the appearance of being spiritual, not formal assent or agreement with God. Genuine repentance which is why he's talking about genuine repentance and calls them to bear fruits, fruits ongoing, to bear fruits that are in keeping with that match at repentance. He's pointing out in that genuine, I know you're here, I know you look alike, the same as everybody else, I know you're going to be baptized, I'm saying genuine, not formalism. You wear the robes of religiosity and you're going to go into the water, but I'm talking about genuine in the heart. Don't just go through the religious motions. I won't save you. Nor will bloodlines or family connection or cultural habit or familiarity 
Still in verse 8, he says, and don't even begin to say, he catches them in this too, don't even begin to say, we have Abraham as our father. What's that about? Well, they're Jewish people. This is a Jewish audience. And he knows they're liable to slip out from underneath this and say, well, you know, yes, the day of the Lord is coming to crush the non-Jews. No, 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 no. He catches them in that too. Ethnicity has zero to do with this. I call, I issue repentance to God for forgiveness of sins, comma, unless you're Jewish, then you're okay. No. Indeed, God will save Abraham and his people, but I tell you, he can make people for Abraham out of rocks. And he will, in fact, Gentiles. Ethnicity is no saving fact. Familiarity does not save Having been in church forever, having Christian parents and a Christian heritage, it is meaningless. What matters is how you yourself respond to the warning of coming wrath and the offer of forgiveness of sins. All of us need to hear that. And it's here, and it's in lots of places in the Bible, and we need to hear that I know some of you, I don't know all of you. I don't know who will listen to this. Every person who hears this needs to hear this. Some, perhaps, because we have been hiding behind my ethnicity, my familiarity with it, my my formal attachments to it, my performances, been hiding behind that and have thought yourself secure and safe, and surely the salvation of God and not the wrath of God will fall on me. No. This is particularly a danger for people who grew up in the church, like me. I didn't realize till I got to college that I'm one of these people. Maybe you are. I assumed for years I, I'm an American, and I'm not a Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, or Jew. Therefore, I'm a Christian. And on the holidays, we go to a Christian church. Duh. And it did not occur to me until, as I said, I was in college, I realized, no, formalism, ethnicity, familiarity, no shelter. The divide is, here is a call, repent, and turn to God for forgiveness of sins in Christ crucified. Only, only shelter. And maybe you're growing up in church and you need to hear that. If so, repent, turn to God and be forgiven. All of us need to hear this. And then. So I want to be extremely clear about that. To be faithful to what John the Baptist is saying, to be extremely clear about that. And then, I need to say a little bit more which is more than what John the Baptist is saying. Because most of us here, I know, and I do know most of you, and I know that as you listen to this, you should have a different response. Because you are not merely formally connected, and you are not 
pretending, and you are not relying on your ethnicity, and you are not relying on your parents' faith, or your grandparents, or the fact that you've been a member here for 55 years. You're not relying on those things. So, what do you do with this? Well, you've got to do something a little different with it. You've got to think. First, bless God. That the wrath of God has come on another for me. Bless God for that. As long as you continue to think of, if you continue to think of, the wrath of God as a crimp on your day and a minor inconvenience, then, then the salvation that God has provided for you in Christ is going to be you know, a, a good thing, helpful. But it isn't. The wrath of God is awful and awesome. And you will never, never know it. Christian, I'm talking to you about something you will never know. set aside off of you and and taken by Christ for you. You're saved from that and more. If that was it, that would deserve our thankful applause. But there is more than that because you have not only been saved from wrath, you have been saved to life. Harold earlier read from the end of the book. The end of the book is your future reality. Saved not just from, but to, do you realize? Glorious, glorious realities. You will be carried not only into a physical place of rest, but you will be carried one day. You will be carried into the very presence of God. And you will live there forever and ever and ever. And that's over forever and ever and ever. We could describe that, but really we couldn't. You've been gloriously saved from wrath to life. Most of us need to think about that. But one additional turn, one more thing that some of us need to think about. And I have been this sort of person too, and I have talked to a number of people who are this person. When you hear, when you read, a passage like this, and they are all over the Bible. And when you hear me preach it like that, which I would argue I should preach it like that because that's what the text is about, something happens in you. Something bad happens in you. And you worry. And you worry. Then you worry again. Because you get stuck in something and, and there's a, a burden comes upon you and this sort of question arises. Yes, I would bless God for being saved from that if I thought I was actually saved from it, but I'm not sure I am. Because, I mean, there it is. He's calling them, he's confronting them on their pretense, on their deception, on their facade. Am I faking it myself? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of worried about that. 
Am I genuine in my faith or am I just presuming? Am I deceiving even myself? Maybe I'm not really truly trusting Christ. Maybe I'm just going through the motions and I'm actually not a believer. Uh-oh, that'd be terrible. Well, how would I know if I'm a believer? Well, bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance. Fruit. Ah, oh, man, I can think of how I'm not as fruitful as I should be. And I can think of particular opportunities to bear fruit that I said no to. Isn't that like a non-Christian to say no to opportunity to bear fruit? And I've walked away from fruitful opportunities, and maybe I am a fruitless tree. Maybe the axe is laid at my feet right now. Uh-oh. If that's you, and I know it is some of you, because I've had this conversation with you, And it has been me at different points in my life. Not anymore. If that's you, then maybe, by the grace of God, maybe you are right on the brink here of being relieved of something. Think think about this with me. You know you're a sinner. If that's you, you are aware that you are a sinner. That's kind of the problem. You are a sinner. And the gospel is true. You also know that. The problem is you're worried that you're faking some genuine faith. You know the gospel is true. You believe that Christ was crucified. You believe that he rose again from the dead. You believe what God has said about his atonement being for the removal of sin off of you, him substituted in your place, him putting righteousness on the believer and taking the believer's sin on himself. You believe all that. And the question is, I'm worried that I'm not being genuine, that I'm not being honest, that I'm faking it. I don't want to fake it. I want to be, I want to be genuine. I want to be genuine. I hope I'm genuine. Do you see the concern to be genuine. Do you see that in yourself? That's kind of what drives the worry. The concern to be genuine actually should relieve you from concern. Think about that. That experience in your heart of the concern to be genuine should be the thing that you look at to relieve yourself of the concern because the person who knows there is no hope apart from Christ and desperately wants to trust Christ for forgiveness of sins and doesn't believe that she has any hope in anything other than Christ and knows that Christ only saves people who actually genuinely trust him and wants to be one of those who genuinely trust him is how a new creation thinks. The old nature doesn't think like that, doesn't worry like that. Now, there probably is more that we could say about that, but catch that and don't let go. If that's you, catch that and don't let go of that. The fact that you are worried, that you know these things and want them to be true of you and want yourself to be a genuine believer of those things is how the new nature thinks and not how the old nature thinks. The old nature assumes, I'm okay. I mean, look at me. I'm me. And I've got all this formal connection, and I've got these bloodlines, and I've got this familiarity, and I know all this doctrine. I mean, how could God condemn me? Now, I'm being a little facetious there. But the old nature is not deeply concerned to be a genuine, honest, truthful believer in Christ. That's something that comes from a new nature.
So, be freed from fretting and from worry and doubt. If, if you want to, if you'd find it helpful, and maybe it is, settle it today, right now. Trust Christ now. For the first, maybe, and for the last time. Now, I thought you said last week that all of life is a life of repentance. Yes, 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 yes. That, that's true, too. But it's not repentance in hopes of being saved again, 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 again. It's not driven by a fear that I might not be saved after all, once again but driven by a constant need that I have as a Christian that I have for God, a constant need that I have for God to fill up all of me and to forgive my sin today. That's as a Christian I live a life of repentance. As a Christian. So settle it and be freed from fretting. The wrath of God is real. The day of the Lord is coming. There is a reckoning, and if you're a Christian, you don't know it. You won't know it. And if you're not a Christian, trust Christ today and be done worrying about it. And instead be relieved. And then turn your attention to the second point. What next? What do I do now? So here's the second observation. The fruit that matches a heart turned towards God is a life of love towards neighbor. The fruit that matches a heart turned towards God is a life of love towards neighbor. In verse 10 and following, we get a conversation of sorts. Of course, this conversation didn't exactly happen like this. He's capturing the crowds, people in general, and getting some sample questions that he's pull, pulled together to tell us something. It's all summary here. These are people who have heard his first paragraph, if you will, have agreed, have repented, reoriented their lives towards him, have, have been baptized in this baptism that John was talking about. They're looking forward to the day of his salvation. They don't understand Christ yet, but looking forward to his forgiveness of sin. And they're now saying, okay, as we look forward to the day, what next? What do we do? What now? I mean, you've told us that we should live lives that are waiting and that are, that are expecting and that are producing fruit that's matching this. That's what we're asking you. You know, how do we produce this fruit? What does it look like? You probably want us to exercise some great devotion to God. Probably need to have longer quiet times, read our Bibles more and pray more deeply and worship more passionately. And you probably want me to be involved in the evangelization of the nations. I should probably get involved in church plant somewhere. And maybe something radical like giving away everything that I have. Maybe, I don't know, my life even. Something big, probably, right? What is it? What should we do? What shall we do? Verse 11, well, if you have extra clothing or extra food and you see your neighbor in need, share it with him. Really? That might sound a little odd, a little boring, ordinary. That's what he says. A little surprising. And then verse 12 is even more surprising because the second group that comes is a deeply unpopular group, the tax collectors. 
Tax collection in the Roman Empire was a privatized industry, which means that the local tax collector is the guy who won the bid to deliver to Rome a certain amount of money and had the power to exact that money and whatever else he felt like exacting. It was legalized theft. And everybody hated these guys because they were legalized thieves on behalf of Rome. Some tax collectors came to John to be baptized and said, well, us, teacher, what shall we do? And what the listeners might have expected is, quit being tax collectors. Obviously. You legalize thieves for our oppressors, Rome? Quit that. But what he says is different. He says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the word for collect right there, it's a term that's used in a, a wide assortment of contexts about executing business, doing a deal, we might say. He just says, do your authorized business. Conduct your business according to what you're supposed to do. Do what's right. Carry on. Keep collecting the taxes for Rome like you're supposed to. Just do what's right. Then verse 14, third group, also unpopular because they would have been the enforcers for the tax collectors. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? You have power. Don't use the power to rob people, to extort from them. By just you know, sticking a sword in their face or by bearing false witness against them in some way or another. Don't extort people. Don't rob them. But instead, be content with your wages. These are very specific things. A couple of very specific things he tells the crowd, and then he deals with a couple of very specific occupations and gives them specific instructions. So we might think he's got something that's just about this very little thing, but if we put them together, something larger arises, something interesting. What John thinks of, what God thinks of here in his word, when he thinks of good fruit that matches, that is appropriate for those who have devoted themselves, who have turned themselves towards God, behavior that matches a heart turned towards God, on the surface seems to have nothing to do with God at all. It's just about people. Do not tell others in need, be blessed, be filled, but share with them what you have. Don't steal, don't extort, don't do violence against them, don't bear false witness against them. Be content with what you have. Nothing about God at all. Or is it? If you think through that list again, you can touch four of the Ten Commandments there. If you work through them, you can touch four of them. If you count the be content one as don't covet. So, there is something about God. And if you think about the second table of the law, all four of them are from the second half that has to deal with people. The second half of the Ten Commandments comes from the first half, which is all about God. This is very much biblical, very much about God. The first half is a heart turned towards God, and the second half of here's, is here's what a heart turned towards God looks like as you interact with your family and your neighbors. You deal with them in these ways, like John said. A Godward life comes out 
with a love towards neighbor life. That's what matches. That's what shows. My life is turned towards God. Show me that by your life turned towards your neighbor in love. That's what John says to them, and that's what we need to consider. That's what should mark us as Christians too. Turned towards God in humble repentance, contrite, and looking to him for the provision of everything. And a life that matches that is a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control towards other people, not just towards God, towards those around us. This is what we look like when the first table of the law has gripped us. We look like the second table of the law. When we have no other gods before him and do not take his name in vain but are committed to worshiping him and him alone, what we look like as we walk through life is a people who love people. So then, of all the people on the earth and of all the people in our city and of all the people on your block and in your workplace and in your school, you we should be a people like this. We should be known for this. To do good to those around us and to love them and to treat them well and to bless them and not hurt them and not use them and not take advantage of them and not take from them to feed ourselves, but instead give to them to bless them. And that's active so not just ignoring or avoiding or thinking we're getting along well with my neighbor because, frankly, I haven't seen him in six months. We have no conflicts at all. Now, that, that happens. I mean, life sometimes teaches you in different directions. You know, winter keeps you inside. But this is active. It's about doing, not just avoiding. It's not don't, it's do. The law is all written like that. All of the law is in the command form of thou shalt not, which always means the opposite, you shall. Don't steal, but instead give. Don't take life, but instead give. It's always don't do this and do do that. We're to be actively engaged with people, not just avoiding them not just not doing bad to them, but doing good to them, actively blessing, seeing a need, giving to meet it, and even looking for needs to meet. A people who actively love. The applications of this to relationships and to business, to the workplace, are legion. I mean, you, could, you can think them through yourselves. But in the very least, it should mean something very simple. If I'm at work, I should do my work well. I should do what is right and what is required of me. I should do my authorized, assigned work faithfully, graciously, to give, to bless. I should be engaged in the workplace in a way that does not say, I'm here for me. But in some way, I'm here for us, and I'm here for you. Now, whatever your business is, it's going to be different. It's going to look different, differently, depending on whatever it is that you do. But in some way, 
to consider mercy and to consider love and to bear fruit that matches a surrendered and humble and repentant and contrite heart before God rather than a proud heart that is in this to advance me and my cause. And if I have to take from you to do that, great. This is business after all. It's not. It's not just business. It's you before God and you for God before this person. So engage with one who considers the needs of others as more important than your own in the workplace too. Now, of course, you know, I'm sure, you, obviously this has to meet the real world. And at some point, somebody's asking, you're, dealing, you're forming a contract with somebody and they ask you for this and ask you for that and ask you for this. Ask for this. At some point, you've got to say, no, that's not in the contract. Yes, of course. Course. But if we approach that first from a mindset, and if we approach all the people in our lives that are going to seek to take advantage of us, and are going to be mean to us, and are going to hate us, and are going to be unjust with us, and are going to be deceitful with us, if we approach them first from the standpoint of, I am one humbled beneath God, and I am here to love you in His name, we approach it from that standpoint, then wisdom and the lines we have to draw look different and get drawn in different places than if we approach it first and foremost from, I'm not giving you an inch. Justice. Only. It's going to look and feel much different when you draw the necessary lines and say, no, we're not doing that. I can't go there. I, don't, I disagree. I resist. That's perfectly fine. You have to do that. But the heart with which you come at it changes everything. Where and how the lines are drawn are changed by your perspective. Love your neighbors yourself. We don't want to miss, even in the workplace, let alone our relationships, our families, and our neighborhoods, we don't want to miss the opportunity to be salt and light in a real and meaningful way, which is why this is important. This is the fruit that God calls for because this is how we be salt and light in the world. Salt. When you love your neighbor, your neighbor ends up loved. Good done to him or to her. Whether it's because he wasn't harmed or he wasn't robbed or wasn't left hungry or, or whatever. God loves people. And so God wants to love people through us, his people. And as that happens, God's creation is renewed and preserved a little bit. And, and the place where we live... It, there are more needs that are met and the evil is curtailed a little bit and justice is upheld a little bit more and salt has fallen on the meat that is indeed still decaying, but it's decaying less, less quickly, less thoroughly. There is a preserving effect of the people of God who live in the world loving neighbor as self. Salt and light because what's happening there is we live as God's salt, as we live loving neighbor as self, what's happening is that we are also shining out into the world who God is in and through us. We love people, and people get the idea, they love me, and they say that's because God is a God of love. Maybe he is. Maybe this feels a little bit like what he actually is like. 
God is a generous God. As we are generous with people, perhaps people begin to wonder, is he in fact generous? He's a just God. And so as we are just in a merciful, loving way, perhaps they begin to wonder, is the love of God even just? Yes, it can be. Look, it is right there. And on top of that, he shows himself in us to be a God who sustains us even when we give ourselves away. Most of us and most of the world walk around kind of like this, trying to hold on to life from fear that we will lose it. And then what happens? If I lose it, if I give it away, what happens? Well, we, we, we do this and we say, it's because I got my life banked somewhere else and I'm okay. Watch. And they begin to get the impression maybe he is a God who can be trusted and a God who sustains we shine him into the world and act as light and salt as we love neighbor as self. This is so very important, which is why it's what he says, bear this kind of fruit. So are you a fruitful tree in this way? Do you love your neighbors yourself actively? Consider that before God. It is so important so how can we do this? Make one, I think, relatively brief comment about that. There's a clue in the last thing that John said to the soldiers. He's told them negatively, don't do this, don't do this. And then he says something positively. Be content with your wages. Don't steal from them. Don't extort them. But be content with your wages, which perhaps make you think of something else. If we follow this to a similar statement in Hebrews chapter 13, we find something interesting, I think, helpful. Do you know the verse, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, if you want to jot them down and look at them later? There the writer says, Keep your lives free from the love of money, John's context here is about money. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Just like he said to the soldiers. Very similar statements here. And the writer of the Hebrews helps us in that he gives us some ground to stand on that gets us to that. The next thing he says, be content with what you have for... I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have, for I'm not going anywhere. Oh, I thought he was talking about be content with the money that I have. Well, probably. Be content with all that you have in life. But most pointedly, what he means is, be content with what you have. You have me. And I'm not leaving you. And I will never turn my back on you and forsake you. And so, he continues in Hebrews, and so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you, do you hear in that? Hear in, think that through. There right there is the ground for how you can love your neighbors yourself. What can man do to you? But what can man do to you? Well, tons of stuff, sure, but really what? 
You have the Lord with you who will never leave you nor forsake you. He is your helper. There's nothing to fear. So the writer of the Hebrews presses home on people that he is counseling not to chase money, but to be content with what they have. Just like John's telling the soldiers here, just like we should be thinking about, I don't want to chase money or other possessions, the things in life, and to worry about what happens if I lose them, but I can be content with whatever it is that I have because I have him who is never leaving me nor forsaking me. He is my help. To him I am submitted, humbly with a contrite heart. He dwells with the contrite and lowly in spirit to shepherd them and carry them along like a shepherd carrying sheep, tender with those who have young. He is my helper. What do I need? What do I lack? What is there to fear? Nothing. Nothing. How you live a life given away, a life that is in love of neighbor, no matter what that costs you, and it will certainly cost you, we are all aware of that, how you live that is not by looking at how lovely your neighbor is. He may not be at all. But instead to regard the one that I have who is my helper, this glorious good and gracious God, Christ in me, the hope of glory. The hope, now and forever, the hope of glory in me now. Christian, he is your helper. Do not fear, but be freed to bear the fruit that matches a surrendered, humble, repentant life before this God. This God who loves you, that kind of life that matches the life before him is the life of love towards neighbor. That's how we are to walk. That's how we are to walk. Turn towards him and surrendered to him. So walk and bear fruit that isn't matching who you are. Rejoicing in who you are. Christian, you are a blessed person. We are a blessed people. We've been loved by the God who is God. If that grips you, if he grips you, then a life that trusts in him and says here to the world in his name that he would be shown, that he would be honored. That is appropriate and it is reasonable and it is possible. Let me pray that we would walk like that as a people individually and as a people corporately, as a church. Let me pray. God, would you free us You free us to be a people who respond to you, who respond to your lordship of us. Respond with a, a life, lives lived in love of neighbor as self. Lord, there are often conundrums and problems and reality barges in and and I pray you would help your people sort out the details in particular situations. But would you do a work in them and in me, even now, that we would face particular details and particular confusing problems from a perspective of I have you. I can be content with you and whatever you deem right for me to have. 
Give us a contentment with you and in you and a fearlessness in this world. Move us to love you by loving our neighbors. And so honor your name and preserve your world and build your church. That's what I ask you to do in us, Lord. Honor your name and build your church. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.